You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. We're in a part of, if I had to guess, we're getting into parts of the Bible where we become more unaware of the things that are going on. I think that's probably safe for you. It is the same with me, where you get into the history and you get into the monarchy, and there's the United Kingdom of David and Solomon, and then or United then becomes divided after Solomon, and there's a northern and a southern, and there's different captivities, and there's different rulers and surrounding nations. They all start to show up, and then during this time, the prophets also show up. So if you read the Bible just kind of cover to cover, you might think it moves chronologically, but it doesn't. It moves thematically. So there is some chronology, Genesis um, and Exodus, but then you get into Leviticus, and it's kind of speaking about one moment that Israel was going through. Numbers kind of goes back into history. Deuteronomy is another moment that's looking back, and so we can kind of follow those chronologically. Uh, But we've done Ruth. Job shows up kind of at the time of uh, the patriarchs, right? So early Genesis is where Job gets placed chronologically. So as we uh, kind of go through these moments, we're going to get a little maybe more confused on what's happening when and where. Um, and then we read a prophet and we're like, I don't even, I don't know these prophets because prophets usually come after the history as you're reading, right? So <clears throat> you're just kind of reading through, you get to the, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, you're getting to those, you're going, to whom are they writing and at what time and why? And usually our confusion about those moments keeps us away from it, which I get, uh, because I have done and sometimes probably still do the same thing. You're like, I don't know. And then you're like, you know, all I know is Jesus is good. He's coming back. And so like, let's just hold on to that, which is good. uh, But God has given us all of this and he has revealed all of himself through these scriptures. So we want to do what we can to understand these moments. So again, this year is not going to make you an expert in the prophets. It will not. But hopefully it will help you gain some comfort in some of the ideas of the prophets, some of the ideas of what's going on in the history of God's people, specifically as we continue on. So we're in the middle of May right now. We're going to continue in the Old Testament through about August. And then we're going to flip to Gospels and New Testament. We'll be in that to finish out the rest of the year. So um, if you're like, we could just kind of plow through, no plowing through, 30 weeks I think is what we end up being in the Old Testament this year. And we're going to get to an interesting passage. I was like, well, how, which one do we pick of the ones that we've read that can kind of help us understand some of how God is moving history along? And I, there is a phrase I think that some of us in the Christian parlance, at least, are aware of. The phrase, guard your heart. You heard that? Yeah. Guard your heart. And it's usually spoken of in the, you know, the confines of relationships, like guard your heart from that boy or guard your heart from that girl. Or, I just need to guard my heart. And like, you know, you're kind of like, I don't even know how, like, what does that mean? Can I tell somebody that I think that they're nice or attractive or like we have all of these ways we don't know, guard your heart, just guard your heart. And we just throw it out there as if that statement comes with its own understanding. You know, like, well, I don't know, I don't really know what it means. But we do understand, and this is, uh, Old Testament had this understanding, I think we will resonate with this as well, is that that kind of, when we talk about the heart, we're not talking about the, the beating thing right now, the physical muscular element that's kind of keeping all of us alive right now. Uh, we're talking about that kind of seat of the emotions and affections, that place that, that um, we don't want to let everyone and everything have access to, but because we're really bad at guarding it, protecting it, 
we very often attach ourselves to the wrong types of affections, the wrong types of feelings, the wrong types of emotions, the wrong types of desires. And we're kind of left, <clears throat> believer, unbeliever, you probably still feel this regardless of where you might be with the Lord, is like, there are things that I, that I think I want to do that I shouldn't. There are things that I desire that if I told anybody, I'd probably be a little embarrassed about. Uh, there are things I feel and things I wonder that I, I don't know how to, how to roll with. And I think that uh, because of that, we always just go, well, just guard it. Just guard your heart. I'm like, I don't, I don't even know how. Well, I thought it might be helpful to get an idea of this phrase by growing up. And first, it comes from Proverbs, in case you were curious. It is a Bible phrase, Proverbs 24. Um, but let's look at what the opposite is. Like, if, if, if we're told to guard our hearts because some bad things might happen, well, let's look at what happens when someone doesn't guard their heart and, and what happens when someone doesn't actually give their attention and devotion to God. Because that, to me, is ultimately what guarding your heart is. It is protecting it from other, other influences and outside sources and the wrong types of affections. But if your heart is not devoted to the Lord, if your commitment is not to Him then it would make a lot of sense that you would feel and wonder and go off in all kinds of different directions. So remember, we had King David. And you can fill in the phrase, and most of us know this, King David was a man after God's heart. Yeah, there we go again. So, so David desired to follow after God. We've even seen this year, David made some bonehead decisions, didn't he? He made some really bad decisions. Um, and, and in that, why can he be called a man after God's own heart? Because he always went back to God. And he always went back, sought God, sought God's mercy and restoration with him first and foremost. So you can be called a man or a woman after God's heart, not because you make perfect decisions in every uh, phase and facet of life, but because your devotion and affection is for him and when you falter and when you struggle, you still return to him. Well, we remember this uh, prophecy that God gave in covenant, the Davidic covenant, where he goes, you're always going to have somebody on the throne. We saw how that really ultimately pointed to Jesus and Jesus' rule and reign, even beyond what we experience now when he returns and, and he is there and we see him and he is ruling and he has authority and we get to worship with him. And there's a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. We see all of this and we experience it. But David still had sons, and after David comes Solomon. And Solomon uh, was the guy who was the wisest man who had ever lived. People came from all over to hear about Solomon's wisdom, because the Lord said, hey, whatever you want, you can have. And Solomon's like, it's going to be hard for me to lead all of these people well if I don't have wisdom. So how about, God, you give me wisdom? God goes, because you asked for the right thing, I'm not just going to give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you everything else because you're trying to pursue the wrong thing. But, but Solomon, even with all of his wisdom, all of his smarts, all of his knowledge, all of the instruction that he has gotten from his father David, everything that he had seen and experienced and known, even Solomon became foolhearted with all of anything that could be packed into his brain, the wisest man who ever lived, he squandered in many ways the wisdom that God gave him. 
made decisions that harmed him and God's people, and actually was the last king before God spoke and said, because of the way that you have operated, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. Ten tribes go north, two tribes go south. And then we follow that through for the rest of the time of the history, the exile, the return, as there's this divided kingdom. When Assyria takes the northern kingdom, Babylon takes the southern kingdom, but they go through centuries living like this. And that's where the prophets show up. So prophets might be a prophet predominantly to the north, predominantly to the south. After you kind of move along a while in the history, if you see the phrase Israel, it's probably referring to the 10 tribes of the north. Judah is the two tribes of the south. And so all these words start showing up because of the way that Solomon acted, because of the way that he approached life. And so we're going to go through, what would it be today? 9, 10, 13 verses, I believe. Uh, but 1 Kings chapter 11, and we're going to see how Solomon acted. 1 Kings 11, starting from verse 1. Now King Solomon loved, there's those affections, many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your hearts after other gods." Solomon clung to these in love. He had, you ready for this? 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. That heart phrase again. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. It continues. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. God shows up. And had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give you one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And the Lord raised up an adversary. Oh, I'm sorry. Then it goes into that. Sorry. I was just going to keep going. So we'll go to 13. This paragraph, or this passage, really very helpful for preachers because it breaks down in two easy-to-follow paragraphs. Paragraph one, what Solomon does. Paragraph two, what the Lord does. 
And so I'm like, this is perfect, right? Like it's, it doesn't give you a three-point sermon, but it gives you two, and you're two-thirds of your way to a good sermon with that and that alone. And so we're going to go to verses one through eight and realize this, that a disobedient heart chooses the world over God. That's, you know, what is disobedience? It's saying to the Lord, you know what's best. Right? And the same thing with if your kids in the room. Like, what is disobedience to your parents? It's, it's essentially saying to your parents that you know what's best. You said do this, and I say I don't want to. Because you know what's best. So saying to the Lord that you know what is best. And in many instances, part of that includes letting, allowing outside influences to have some kind of effect on your heart, your choices, your decisions, your feelings, your affections. And so we're going to start by looking at the relationships going on in verses 1 through 8. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Even though the Lord said you shouldn't do this. Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. That seems like a lot. It's a lot of marriages. And sometimes, we, we get this thing in our head, we're like, it's like, does the Bible approve of this? And you have to realize that, that the Bible is not, in what it writes, condoning something just because it, the words exist. Sometimes it is just explaining what has happened. Now, what Solomon has done here is he was using some worldly wisdom. That's what he was doing. He was applying worldly wisdom, not wisdom from the Lord, to the situation. He goes, if I want to grow in power and I want to grow in influence, the best way to do that is to have good relationships. Because what king is going to start a war with a nation that his daughter is a queen in? What king's going to do that? She could always go home, right? Because dads and daughters have a thing. Daughters have a specific access to a dad that sons don't. Sorry, sons. But there's just something about daughters where you're just like, oh, I'll do anything you say. So Solomon was pretty smart. He was starting alliances with neighboring countries and neighboring peoples so that he would have influence in the area. Now, if you ever look at your map, right, because the Bible has, or your paper Bibles at least, have uh, maps in the back, you'll notice that Israel is in a unique spot in the land. Israel kind of gives you access to Africa, gives you access to Asia, gives you access to modern-day Turkey. Like, if you go through, like, you have to go through Israel to get to a lot of things. And some major roadways would go through Israel. It's interesting that God gave to his people a highly coveted piece of land in the Mediterranean because it gave you access to all these continents, all these places and countries. And so Solomon's going, well, what's the best way to do this? We're going to basically, through marriage, have nice alliances. And I'll just start all of these things. But what the author, right, reading 1 Kings does, goes, the Lord said in Deuteronomy, before there was a kingdom, he said, you're not supposed to do this. Because what are you doing when you start to just do worldly wisdom to things? You're saying, the Lord's ways aren't better. What has God said time and time again? I am your guard. I will protect you. I will lead you. You follow after me. You will be taken care of. And yet time and time again, what do these kings do but go, "Mm, I'm not totally sure about that. Not totally sure that if I do these things in the ways that you say that what you promised will actually happen. And, I mean, look around, God. The other nations do the same thing. 
And so we're going to lag behind the other nations in how we think about what we do if we just do things the way that you say. So let me apply some of this wisdom to the situation and tell you what's actually best, even though you have said we aren't supposed to do this. Not only that, but the kings were supposed to write a copy of the law so they might remember it and so they might keep it. So God is giving instructions through Deuteronomy to future generations when there is a king on the throne. And yet Solomon does not keep the commands. He tries to live his life like the people around him, thinking that that is somehow more effective. And you look at this, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of David, his father. This is not a passage about the influence of women in the lives of men, right? Like, because as his wives, his wives went after many foreign wives. Like, this isn't about anything like that. In the Old Testament in particular, the nations around Israel had their gods, And so what God was saying was essentially, if you get into relationships, if you marry people from other nations, they're going to bring along with you their worship, their gods, their authorities and principles and powers. They're going to bring that in. And you, because anybody who's married gets this to a degree, you're going to want to please the heart of your spouse. And what does that usually mean? Compromise. Essentially, you'll see the same thing, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament giving instruction in the Corinthians, like, if you can remain unmarried, remain unmarried, because that's awesome. If you can't, if you must be married, get married. You're not sinning if you get married. But marry somebody who's a believer. Because if you marry somebody who's a believer, these are focused on the same thing. But remember that if you're married, sorry, I'm dropping pens. If you are married, the married man has to be concerned about things of this world has to be concerned about what's going on with his wife, has to be concerned about things going on in his family. And so when you do that, you're attaching other concerns to your life that the unmarried person doesn't have. And you even go, and often is better, because you can be wholly devoted to the Lord. And so we see the same principle played out, which is you, if you're going to marry, marry people who are pursuing God, because once you do the phrase unequally yoked, a believer married to an unbeliever, that's a hard situation. Now, you might be in one of those situations even here today. You're married to somebody's married to somebody who doesn't know the Lord. It's not the, the solution isn't divorce your spouse. But even the New Testament gives instruction here. They go, if your spouse is okay with being married to you, great, go after it. But there is always that struggle when you have one person who wants to follow the Lord and one person who doesn't. I don't think there would be a person in this room who, if presented with that scenario or who actually lives within that scenario, would say, oh no, this is, this is perfect, this is exactly how it's supposed to be. Because we know it's not. So there's Solomon making decisions that are in keeping with what we understand about human relationships, which is when you are married or in a relationship with somebody like that, you are going to give concessions, you're gonna try and care for your wife, right? you're gonna do those things, but he's doing it in the wrong ways. Because he does it by creating ways for them to continue worshiping their gods, but within the nation of Israel. He went after the Ashtoreth, goddess of the Sidonians, the god, uh, goddess of uh, fertility, and often with gods and goddesses of fertility came all kinds of um, inappropriate and immoral behavior. 
Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow God. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, who would be okay with human sacrifice. Human sacrifice. So, so Solomon is essentially opening the gates of other gods and other philosophies and other worldviews coming into the nation. Though his responsibility for the nation was to protect them, to lead them in godliness, to be an example for them, and to be sure the ways of the Lord remained. But instead, <clears throat> his heart turned away because he was concerned about appeasing other people. And it's interesting how very often disobedience multiplies. That if you disobey in one direction, you're like, well, you just kind of have to keep going, right? You kind of feel like you're stuck. And so he's like, well, I'm going to marry a wife. Now I'm going to marry two. Now I'll marry three. And then you get up to 700. And that's kind of a lot. It's a lot of anniversary cards to write. Like just for the cost of postage, you shouldn't do it. <coughs> A lot of flowers to buy. There's just a lot going on there. He's like, yeah, this is a good idea. But then what happens with that? You start to then bring in all of these other influences. All these other gods and goddesses come into the land. You go, no, this is okay too. You ever heard the phrase missionary dating? Right, this is kind of a hip phrase that we use sometimes. Like, oh yeah, you don't want to do missionary dating. It's when you date somebody who might be a young believer, an unbeliever in hopes of bringing them to faith or helping to see them mature. Like, bad idea. You don't do that. Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so beyond just the marriage relationship, it is true. And this is the way I put it, is that you have to protect the people who have the closest access to your life and your heart. That you can't just go, anybody can talk to me about anything and give me any advice. And I watch this at times. And I do watch it in the realm of marriage. It makes me really nervous. It's because when somebody gets frustrated with their spouse, they'll start to find friends who will affirm their position. They'll start to find friends who will go, no, yeah, you're, you, you have every right to be angry. You have every right to do what you're doing. You have every right, right? Because what do we do? We start to look for people who are going to tell us the things that our heart wants to do in moments where we probably don't need it. And so we have to be zealous and really on top of recognizing the people who have access to the seat of our heart, our emotions, our feelings, our affections, that when we live and just let anybody influence us in every direction, we are often multiplying disobedience in some direction. And so we do have to guard that. I pray that now for my kids. I'm not gonna be around my kids forever. So I'm praying even now, Lord, I just pray they always have good friends. I pray that now, should they marry? And it is a should, it's not an if. It's a should they marry. If that's what you have for them, that the person they marry knows you and loves you. And I'm praying those things now because you understand how relationships work. You understand what people do. And so we need to have people in our lives in keeping with what is true about the Lord. We need the person, honestly, and we want, I know you want this, even though sometimes we don't say we do. You want somebody who's gonna go, stop being crazy. Stop being crazy. I was sitting at, uh, it was breakfast. We were eating breakfast for lunch, but with a friend uh, just this past Friday, and I was telling him some things, and he goes, uh, he said, number one, blah, blah, blah. Number two, that's not true. And uh, he's like, this is not true. And I was like, well, you're not true, right? What do you do? You're just like, 
You go, yeah, that's probably accurate. It's not true. So a disobedient heart chooses the world over God and often has to do with outside influences, the things that get the closest access. Have you ever even just audited? Who do I run to? To whom do I run for advice and for counsel? Sometimes it's your high school friends. High school friends are sometimes the worst advice givers in the world because they somehow stayed locked into high school. You ever been to your high school reunion and you're like, how did they not change? How did nothing change? Right, which I know, I mean, oh, that's an arrogant judgmental decision. Like, I get it. But you look and you go, like, the things that you think you outgrow, you don't outgrow because it's not about the stage of life, it's about the heart and what are you feeding the heart and what is storing up in your heart and what are you caring about and what are you pursuing? And if you surround yourself with people who love and pursue the same things, no wonder, no wonder. And then there's also what happens with worship. There's this phrase, you may not think anything of it, in verse seven. Solomon built a high place, abomination, and then just look, on the mountain east of, the, east of Jerusalem. More than likely, the mountain east of the Jerusalem, if you don't know the geography, is the Mount of Olives, which is right across from the temple. So it wasn't as if Solomon was like, we're gonna just go ahead and hide this idol worship from the nation. Like you could be at the temple and you could look east and you would see a mountain where the high places would be. And if you had a good arm, you might be able to throw a rock and get pretty close to it. I mean, we're not talking about idolatry that was just hidden off over in the corner. It was like, no, 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 we got the temple here and we're gonna set up some idols right over here on the other mountain, competing with God. It wasn't as if they were buried or hidden in the sand or something like that. Solomon seemed to have no, there's a cool word here, compunction, right? I like that word, so I had to use it. He had no care for the fact that he was setting up idolatry, idol worship, right across the valley from the temple where worship of the true God was to happen. It didn't even concern him. But this is so often what happens with us with even the stuff that shows up on our TV screens, the stuff that we let ourselves watch and listen to and look at and like and talk about and enjoy, the same thing happens to us. We're like, oh man, that's crazy. I'm like, no, 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 you bring that junk into your living room. Every day, every day we do this. We're like, oh, it's no big deal. You know why it's no big deal? Because you probably surrounded yourself with people who will tell you it's not a big deal. People who agree. You need people who don't agree with you sometimes who go, I think that's a little crazy. And you go, huh, that might be a good point. Like sometimes we read the Old Testament, we just go, oh, these guys, I mean, who in the world would ever do that? And I'm like, do we understand how seared our consciences have become by the amount of things that we expose ourselves to day after day after day after day as if it doesn't have some kind of effect on us? The reason you cry at movies and at songs is because they have an emotive effect on you, the watcher and the listener. It's the reason you like it. That's the reason like some smells and some songs and some movies happen and you're immediately brought back. Anybody familiar with the movie Stalag 17? Anybody? Yeah, just me. Okay, yeah. Milita old military movie, right? The reason I'm familiar with this movie is because my mom liked it. And I would watch it with mom. A movie that I would have never, ever cared about. Same thing with The Dirty Dozen. A movie I never cared about, never had any interest in. And I would go, why? I think about mom. 
So we are foolish. It's foolish. And I have all these things in my life that I'm, I'm just a mess with. But it's true regardless of how well I live it out. We are foolish to think that the things to which we expose ourselves have no impact on us. Foolish. If you thought about it again or discussed it again, it had an impact. The end. If it had any effect on you one way or the other, it had an impact. You're like, well, I'm, at least I'm monogamous. Amen. Right? You add a couple more spouses to the mix, game over. The worst thing for Solomon, though, is as the leader of the people of Israel, he led them astray. He wasn't just leading himself astray and letting himself be influenced and affected by this, but the whole nation saw it and couldn't escape it. In fact, as the kingdom divides in the north, the king there goes, we have to set up some new places to worship because if not, they're going to go to Jerusalem and realize that they want to be united again. So we're going to set up a god in the north, idol in the north, we're going to set up an idol in the south of our little ten tribes here so that no one ever goes to the southern kingdom and sees what they're missing out on. Make the idols, same words of Aaron, behold the gods who led you out of Egypt, right? The king has influence in the lives of the people and the people see it. So yeah, God's angry. God's angry because his heart turned away, Solomon's heart turned away, though it was not supposed to. God's angry because in doing that, the nation turned away. It's amazing what happens when a person in authority starts to say something's okay. You start to think it's okay. You start to go, well, I I guess so. That makes sense. And so when people in positions of authority start to say things, I think this is one of the reasons James, the half-brother of Jesus, goes, not everybody should be a teacher because you who teach will be judged more strictly. Why? Because when you start to say, essentially, thus saith the Lord about things, you have influence over people's understanding, people's hearts, people's affections, people's worldview of who God is. is that You do that, there is certainly great uh, joy in that, but also great fear. Because me saying something just kind of to myself that's wrong, that's one thing. <clears throat> me saying something that's wrong to in a room of people who want to follow after the Lord, totally different thing. And Solomon leads him, his wives, but the relationship lead, lead him astray, lead him astray. And in him, making bonehead decisions, the nation sees it and goes, yeah, we should do that. Now we read in verses 9 through 13, and this is true, regardless of the consequence or the severity of the consequence, that God always addresses disobedience. God doesn't sweep disobedience under the rug. The, The sacrifice of Jesus teaches us as much. Disobedience never gets a free pass in any time, in any place, and in any situation. Never. So we read, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. Like, you should know better. We've talked. The Lord commanded him concerning this thing. He should not go after other gods. It wasn't as if he didn't know, but he didn't keep what the Lord commanded. So the Lord said, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. 
Yet for the sake of David, because God's gracious, you're not going to see it, but I'll tear it from the hand of your son. But I will not uh, tear away all the kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son. It was actually two, but one was so small. Benjamin was so small, they often just kind of threw it in with Judah. It's like, Judah and Benjamin, right? Like, like, um, like the runt of the tribe. So it's like, yeah, you'll get one too, uh, but really it's two. So it's 10 in the north, two in the south. You will have one trial for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. That God always addresses disobedience. Our sin and our disobedience always has a consequence. Now, we exist in the New Testament era. So we have seen the full consequence of both Solomon's sin, David's sin, the nation's sin, our sin, your sin, my sin. And the consequence of that was the death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But different than Solomon, different than David, different than you, different than me, the book of Philippians would describe it this way, that Jesus was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. I believe it's in John chapter 2, Jesus essentially says this, he didn't trust himself to men because he knew what was in the hearts of men. Knew what was in the hearts of men. He knew us. He knew us well enough not to trust us. And that's really the human condition, isn't it? So our sin, our disobedience, our error, our thoughts, our actions, the way we speak, the people we harm, the people we are harming right now, the people that we have harmed, all of that Disobedience. And the wrath that is due, that disobedience, is seen and executed on Jesus Christ. So that we do not feel the consequences of our disobedience. That God in his grace keeps us from the greatest harm separation from him because of our disobedience by instead having Jesus take it. In just a few weeks, we'll be going through Isaiah 52, 13, 53, uh, 12, I think it is. We'll be going through the suffering servant song in Isaiah where he speaks about what this servant did and how this servant lived and how the servant magically came to life in the last three verses, like back to life. So we'll be in that seeing even the prophecy of the need for someone to take on the iniquity, the guilt, the sin of us. So God always addresses disobedience and he disciplines us. The full consequence of our disobedience we have forgiveness from. But even as we operate today, there are consequences to our disobedience and to our sin. Sometimes large, sometimes small. Sometimes we're still living in them, aren't we? And that's wisdom. Why? Because you know your heart. You're becoming more and more aware of its kind of bent and its wickedness. And that's one of the main reasons that in the New Covenant language, God says, I'm going to go ahead and remove that heart that stinks. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to do it. I'm going to put my spirit within you. Because you can't do it. David, a man after God's own heart, we know he screwed up. We get one generation later, Solomon. Solomon's done for. 
He just kept making decisions in the wrong direction, which is funny because if you read Proverbs, he's like, look out for the crazy women. He doesn't say crazy. Watch out. Watch out for the adulterer. Watch out for this woman. It's dangerous. So the guy who is like, oh yeah, this is a good idea, is also saying to his sons, bad idea. And it's so interesting how much easier it is to give advice than it is to actually heed it. Right? I remember reading one of the commentators about that. It's, like, it's much easier to tell people what they should do. It's much more difficult to actually do the things you tell people they should do. So I had a professor in seminary. He would be like, do as I say, not as I do. He's like, because I know that I'm going to do the wrong thing. I know that I'm going to do the wrong thing. But I also know the things that should be done. I know the way it should be done. I know what you should follow. Which is why we always want to be like, please look at Jesus. Please look at Jesus. We need one another. We need one another's examples. We need one another's encouragement. We need one another's life. But I cannot give for you what you need, which is a right relationship with God. All I can do is say, could you just look at that, please, and follow after him and trust in him, and we'll figure the rest out. And so I say as we finish, it's a simple phrase, check your heart. Check your heart. Check yourself, however you want to say it. Write it down in whatever way before you wreck yourself. Because there are some specific things we need to realize. First is that you need to know that your heart is wicked. Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That there's no one who understands the human heart but God. God searches the heart. He knows the heart. He changes the heart. And so you have to know from the beginning, and this is something that people push out of against because we have this kind of phrase, people are generally good. And I go, well, how so? Like, what do you mean generally good and in what ways? Because if you're speaking like in one way, like, will we generally be nice to one another? Yeah. Will the laws of the land and our land generally try to protect people? Yeah. Yeah, they will. Generally. So if we're saying generally good, I can roll with you. But if you say that as kind of a, a, a statement that then declares that there is no wrong, I can't go there with you. The heart is wicked and desperately sick. And it would be embarrassing, and I'm really glad for it, uh, that we don't do this. It would be embarrassing if we just put on display all the things that you have thought inappropriately even to this moment today. We don't want that. But we have to recognize that as we check our own hearts, we need to know we're in a bad spot. We're in a bad spot and you can't fix it, right? It is terminal, the situation that you are in, unless you go to the Lord. Know your heart, I do say this, look at your influences, people and things. People and things. What gets access to your eyes, to your mind, to your heart? Who gets access to those places? And I would love to be able to say, oh no, it's neutral. It's not neutral. It's not neutral. So we have to look to our influences and go, who gets? Who gets my most intimate moments? Who hears? Who gets to help me process life decisions? Who helps me think about these things? And do they point me to the Lord? Or they just say, well, just go with, you know, like, do, do what you feel. Bad advice. 
In most instances, that's really bad advice. Just do what you feel. Because how you feel changes based upon the weather. You're like, I'm depressed. Well, it's raining. Right? I feel really good. It's sunny outside. Like, so often, like, yeah, it's a great day. Because why? Usually something happened that made you happy, and so everything's good. Something happened that made you sad, and now you're sad. Like, you can't trust the fact that you're often on an emotional roller coaster trying to figure life out. And so you have to look to your influences and kind of have, who are those people in your life who will help you? Which is why the third thing, right? Know your heart, look at your influences, and seek out community within the body of believers who are going to help point you to the Lord. Because what we need to learn from David and Solomon and just the very fact that you know who you are and you know what's going on in your heart is you know you're not going to think perfectly about things most of the time. Not some of the time, right? We're always trying to hedge and make ourselves better than we are. Most of the time, you're going to make bad decisions. Which is why you have to let others in, but you have to be careful about who you let in. So we're always processing, right? Our kids are in public school which we don't mind, we'll do whatever. But right now, we like it. It's right in front of our neighborhood. We ride our bikes. We play baseball there. We love it. And I know very clearly that our kids are not being taught about the Lord in their schooling environment. Well, whose responsibility is it to teach my kids about the Lord? Right? I don't pawn them off to anybody. It doesn't matter what kind of schooling you pick. It doesn't change the responsibility the Lord puts on you. So what do we do? Hey, what are you hearing about? What are you doing? How are you processing that? What have you seen? We even have this phrase, did you hear or see anything inappropriate at school today? What do we want to do? Well, we want to go ahead and talk to you about a way to think about it, a way to process it. I was telling our community group even recently, I was like, we talk about our kids, we'll just say birds and the bees, but we have that conversation young. Why? Because we want to be the first. And it doesn't even really matter what environment you put your kids in. There's going to be somebody with a cell phone by about the time they're four and a half. That's how it feels at least. And so we just talk about it. I want our conversations about the Lord and processing life to be so common, it's a borathon. Like, I know what my dad's going to do, I know what my dad's going to say, and now we're going to talk about it. Like, yeah, absolutely. But we as adults need to do the exact same thing. I encourage you to be in a community group. Are they perfect? No. But you need to learn how to help, have others in your life help you process what is even going on in your life. I still remember one of the times it was the most keenly helpful uh, because we, we have old cars, right? Like I think our average mileage is about 150,000 and our average age, I don't even know anymore. We drive old cars because we drive paid for cars. And I was really annoyed with an old car that we had. This was like four old cars ago because old cars break. And I think I've told the story, but it just stuck out to me and it seems so mundane where I was ready just to go all in and buy a new car because I was over it. I had already gotten approved for the loan. I was like, I'm done. And my buddy Craig, praise God for Craig, who's still, I use him in my life for these things. He was like, why in the world would you like latch on to a $20,000 loan when you could just spend $500 and try and fix the things that are annoying you? I'm like, shut up. <laughs> because I'm mad and I want it. But when you have other people in your life and they help you process what's going on in your life, you can go, you know what? That's a better decision than the one I was about to make. And so this is what we long for, even in being in a community group, is that there's going to be times you're kind of functioning at a negative 10 million. But maybe somebody else is functioning as like a plus two, which would be a pretty good day for most of us. And the plus two person can just go, are you sure? And you're like, 
You know what? That's some great advice. That's some great advice. So how do we actually guard our hearts, right? We have to look at our, uh, know what's going on here, look at those who are around us, seek out community within the church first. Within the church first. You can have friends who are not in the church, please. Even Paul's like, you can't avoid people who don't know the Lord. Like, that's, that's silly and obnoxious. It removes the whole reason to go tell people about him. But you can also be protective of those who have greatest access to your heart. And then finally, and this should be in all of these things, but we have to filter what you do, what you believe, what you think through the scriptures. You have to go, hey, that's awesome, great advice. Like, how did you form that out? And there are often these gray spots. And they're not really gray, but like they're places where godly wisdom can be applied. How much money should you spend on a car doesn't exist within the scriptures, right? But wisdom on how to make decisions does. And so my friend goes, that seems like a much stupider decision than just trying to fix the things that are annoying you. You go, hmm, you should write a book. How not to make stupid decisions. Like, like it's how you feel. And so, really, we have to filter what we decide, what we think, what we believe through the scriptures. But in areas where we're going, the Bible doesn't say X on this situation. Unfortunately for Solomon, he had some like, don't marry a lot of people, bad idea, like red X across the idea. And he was like, meh, I'm gonna do it. And there are some for us where we just go, I don't know what to do here, Lord. I don't know what to do here. And that's where the people of God get to play one of the most vital roles of being together in a body in Christ, which is helping us pursue him in a way that gives him honor and glory in a way that makes him known and seen and allows us to walk with him more deeply and allows others to help us to do that. And so often in our kind of North American world, we do not give people that kind of access to us because we're individualistic and we're privatized. We don't want people into our homes. We don't want people into our lives. And the Bible just kind of goes, there's not a category for that kind of Christian in the New Testament. You have created it. And you can try and live like that, but it's kind of a pain Sometimes when people are, they're not really asking me advice, they just want me to bless a decision. You ever had that? Hey, here's what I'm thinking. And I just kind of go from the jump. I'm like, do you want me to actually talk to you about it or do you just want me to say good job? Because I'll just say good job if you want me just to say good job. But if you're actually asking me what you think or what I think, I'll share that with you. But just let me know where we're going here because if you just want to say, well, I talked to the pastor and pastor said, like, that's a different conversation than maybe the one I want to have. So we always have to be living our lives before others openly and honestly, which is a hard thing to do. Why? Because we know our hearts, which kind of brings us back full circle, doesn't it? Praise God for Jesus, who changes our hearts and enables us to live by the power of his spirit in ways that the world would never want you to live because it doesn't want you to know God and to follow him and to trust him. But he has provided a way through his son. The Lord has provided a way for us to follow after him, to know him, to trust him, and to live together. The church is a gift for us to help us to follow after the Lord all that we have and all that we are. So I want to pray that can exist for us at Genesis, that we can do that, that we can live that and be that. Heavenly Father, you're good to us. You're good to us when we never deserve it. We wander, we struggle, we fumble, 
We lie, we cheat, and we make poor decisions more often than we make good ones. We are worse than we think, but we are loved even more greatly. And pray now, Lord, that our hearts would be devoted to you, empowered by what you have done for us. That you would guide us and lead us as a church family to make wise decisions, to filter our lives through your scriptures, to care for one another, to look out for one another, to love one another, to follow after you. Father, I pray for every relationship that exists and all the myriad relationships that exist in this room and outside of this room, that you would get our hearts. That because of your spirit and the work that you have done in us, that we would be fully devoted unto you. You would grow us in your likeness and with your wisdom. Because through your son, we have your mind and your heart and your thoughts. So God, be glorified through us. Forgive us where we constantly fail, but grow us up in the Lord. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.